But this morning, we want to talk about those moments that turn everything upside down. Those moments that challenge that stand, the stand that we should all be taking. And sometimes those moments challenge that stand in terms of will you walk with God? Will you obey God? And, and we come up across circumstances where it is incredibly uncomfortable to say, I'm a Christian. It is incredibly uncomfortable to say, I believe that's wrong, or to say, I won't do that. In the business world, I saw men that lost their jobs because of integrity, standing for integrity. I saw some that lost their jobs because of lack of integrity, too. But sometimes bosses don't want someone with integrity. Sometimes bosses are concerned that that will cost a buck or two. I've seen people lose friendships over stands for Jesus Christ, especially recently on social media. As people don't believe that the, the stands that the Bible would take are applicable anymore and don't believe those are something a normal thinking person would take, but we stand. And we stand for Christ. And, and these moments, these crisis moments really reveal whether we're standing for Christ or whether we're just taking a walk while it's convenient. And so those crises are going to come. Those pressures are going to come. The pressure to compromise. Otherwise, there's hurt and ostracization. The battle against sin and the, 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 the fight against temptation can be wearying. And that becomes an internal moment where we decide, am I going to stand for Christ? Am I going to believe what he says? Or am I going to compromise because it would just be easier and it looks like it would be more fun? circumstances are crisis moment or can be crisis moment and all of these this morning we can call furnace moments because we're talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the, the furnace and so these are all furnace moments we were, where we are standing with a decision and circumstances can, can make it hard to have faith and trust because the big question today is will we take a stand for Christ no matter what circumstances come our way or will we let something shake us to the core and shake our faith? Ongoing trials like illness, like cancer, like pain, like things that, that expect no remedy can make us challenge our own belief in God. Do I believe that God still loves me? Do I believe that God is still working? As we heard in testimony this morning, do I believe that God should even allow this to happen? And these are furnace moments, crises moments, that make us question our faith sometimes or firm up our faith sometimes. And either can happen depending on which way we go. See, the question we sometimes ask is, why didn't God work the way I expected? Why doesn't he just make my life easy? That'd be cool. And there are reasons for all of that that are way beyond us. Things that are happening that are way beyond us. And if we wait for life to be easy, to take a stand for God, it's not much of a stand. Because a stand is revealed by the circumstances we take. Now this morning is, is a, a very personal morning for Susie and I. Because this text, I don't know, this has got to hold it together. <laughs> This text is probably the core text that has held us together in the last year. And so, some of that might come out this morning. I, I, I'm debating how much, do I, how much do I share, how much do I not. There's reasons I haven't shared a lot from the pulpit. 
um, from this text, actually. But I think there's some things that maybe our experience can help others with. As we've tried to apply this text, and especially the very center of this text, the middle portion, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make one of the greatest proclamations of standing for Christ and of faith in Christ, no matter the circumstances that we see in Scripture. And so we come to this text excited to be encouraged in our faith. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. If you're not there already, Daniel chapter 3. And we will work through the whole chapter today, and we'll spend a little bit more time on the center portion, their declaration. But Daniel chapter 3. Last week we saw that God is all-wise. He's all-powerful with the dream and the, the revealing of the dream and then the revealing of the meaning of the dream, which was incredible. And King Nebuchadnezzar was faced with, this is a God who knows all things. This is a God who is sovereign over all things. And he was willing at that point to acknowledge that about God and sort of include God in his list of many gods he worshipped. Sort of convenient. You can worship whichever ones you want. And so he added Yahweh into that with some nice words about Yahweh. But was he there yet with his understanding of who God was? No. Because God was still part of many gods. And, and we're going to see that today. And if you remember the dream, it was the giant statue, right? And the statue was made of different metals. The head was the head of gold. And, and I can just picture King Nebuchadnezzar getting all excited when Daniel said, that's you. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm the gold part. I'm the best part. I'm the head. And, and, and I, I, this is just a little bit of my own imagination. I think King Nebuchadnezzar got a little lost after that because he was still fixated on he is the best, he is the head, he is gold, that he didn't grasp completely that the, the point of the dream was his kingdom would go away. And so he is thinking, well, not on my watch, in my, in, in my imagination. And so we come to today, and, and that was all last week, but we come to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego today, and they are now rulers. They are, um, have a high position in Babylon because of Daniel and what happened last week. And, and we come to a point where King Nebuchadnezzar thinks it's a good idea to build this giant statue of himself. And so he is going to build this statue, and he is going to have people worship this statue, probably as some sort of loyalty test, some sort of way to, to bring all these people together from all these nations, all of his rulers, and give a test of loyalty. And so we start reading in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. The whole thing is gold, not just the head. So, so he's sort of taking the image from the dream and modifying it to fit his needs. And it's probably made of wood or metal covered with gold because that would be a lot of gold otherwise. Whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. Now let's just get the picture here. 60 cubits high is about 90 feet. Think a nine-story building. We were counting stories this morning and maybe about the height of Great Wolf Lodge. Okay? So that's the height of this statue. The width is six cubits, so about nine feet wide. So to, to us, nine feet seems a lot, but when you have something that high, this is sort of a narrow, tall thing. All kinds of conjecture. Well, could it have been the form of a person then? Because that'd be sort of weird, really skinny, uh, weird configuration. Could have been like a totem pole. Some think that it was on this giant 
um, stand pedestal and then it looked like a person above it. I think it probably was the image of Nebuchadnezzar. And be because of chapter 2, because of where he's going with it, but we don't know that for sure, and that's not the point. But he set it up on the plain of Dura. Uh, and again, we don't know exactly where that is. Probably 6 to 16 miles south of Babylon, suburbs of, of Babylon, out on a plain. Why would you do a, a tall statue on a plain? More people can see it, right? You can get more people around it, and it's more impressive. You put a tall statue 90 feet tall in Yosemite, and you're like, ha, that's nothing. But out on a plain, it dominates. And so we get this image of Nebuchadnezzar. And he sets this up in one of the provinces of Babylon. And in, in verse 2, Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces, provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so he takes, these are all words for people that were officials or rulers. In fact, they go from the most power to the least power, showing that he took everybody. Everybody in the administration, everybody that was somebody had to come. And that included Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so they're out at this plane. They're told it's for the dedication of this image, whatever that means. But we're going to find out here in a moment. And, and it's this test like... Uh, I think it is a test of loyalty, like I said. It'd be like if Tuesday morning I had a giant statue of myself set up in the office and all the pastors had to come in and bow down to that. That'd be sort of cool. Just kidding. <laughs> That's not a smile. <laughs> no, that would be ridiculous to do, but that is what King Neb did. And so he sets this up in verse 3. Then the satraps, and he goes through the list of all the officials again, they gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the herald makes his announcement. And he's probably on some sort of platform where everyone can hear. Verse 4, the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And at that point, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and any other Jews that were there were facing a crisis. What do they do? Because now this isn't dedicating an image. This is worshiping an image. This is bowing down. And it's a big deal. They have all kinds of instruments. This is a big band. This is, this is bigger than any band any of you have been part of. I mean, this is a big deal, and it's, an, it's music of worship. And so they had a choice to make. Will we worship this image? Now to most in the culture, understand, to most in the culture, this is no big deal. When, you, when you're in a polytheistic culture where you can have many gods, what's one more? And if it means saving your life and honoring King Nebuchadnezzar so he doesn't kill you, or fry you in this case, then why not do it? But to the Jews, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who have been commanded, you shall serve God alone. There will be no other gods before him. This makes a difference. And it's everything. And so they had a choice to make. Verse 6 sets up the, the, the consequences of the choice and how deadly it was. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. 
So the, so the price of disobedience is death. It's death. It's to be roasted in this furnace. They, not to be crude, but that is what they did. And it's probably one of the furnaces they set up to smelt the, the idol, right? To, to smelt the image. Um, all the metal that went there, all the gold that went there. And so these are big things. We know from the text it was big enough for at least four people to be walking around inside. And they were big areas where you could feed the fire from the bottom usually and had some doors at the bottom to bring out the metal that was melted. But then at the top was where you put in the, the raw materials and the metal and the bigger opening on the top. We also know from verses like Jeremiah 9.22 that this was not an extraordinary circumstance. And what I mean by that is it was pretty common for some of the kings to put people in a fiery furnace as a form of execution. We see that in Jeremiah 29, 22 with Zedekiah and Ahab who were, who were roasted, it says, in the fire. Keep in mind in these kilns, the temperatures could reach upwards of 1,000 degrees centigrade. It's about 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. That'll do the job. And so that was the situation. And this, is, this, this furnace is in the area. Bow down or this is the result. And verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Boom. They all bowed. Now, if you're reading this, what's your first question? Did they all bow? Wait a minute. What, what, what about the people that we've already talked about that have stood for Christ? Did they bow? And, and the story is going to go on. But if you just stop there, it, it just makes it look like this is normal and everyone bowed. But it introduces the question of who will we worship? Who will we worship? What will we worship? Even in addition to God. Are there things that we'll worship in addition to God? Hey, I still believe in God. I still go to church. I still go to Bible study. I'm good. It doesn't matter that I'm adding this thing in that I'm worshiping or this is more important to me than God. Idols are insidious. Idols creep in. Idols take our affections and our desires when we least expect it. And that is the worship conflict that they're faced with. So point number one, and my points this morning are really summaries of the story, and then we'll have applications within that. Point number one is that it's the setup of the worship conflict. This is the setup of the worship conflict. Who will you worship? God or adding something else? Then we get to verses 8 through 12, and it's the jealous accusation. The jealous accusation. And we're going to see here that, that actually... It wasn't noticed by King Nebuchadnezzar that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't, didn't bow down. But it was noticed by some other people. Verse 8. Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Yeah, pour it on. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, and he lists all the, the music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. They're, 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 they're laying it thick. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over. I, I love that. A little dig there. 
There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. You know, I'm not going to mention their names, but let's go with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. And so they go very intentionally to get these three young men in trouble. These three young men who came in as Jews, who remember in chapter 1 have already shown to be wiser because of the work of God. In chapter 2, they've shown that they can understand dreams where these wise men can't. And then they were given positions of authority over all of the locals. This is a jealousy issue. This may be rage along with that jealousy. But they are ticked off that this has happened, that these people have taken their positions, and they have an opportunity now to accuse them while looking good to the king. Because now it looks like they're loyal to the king. And and their accusation was was largely correct. They wouldn't bow. Um, I think it's overstated on pay no attention to you. They didn't pay attention to this order, but it was intentional. They made it personal against the king, but that wasn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's goal. They made it personal to the king of kings. And they chose to obey him above all others. And so they're trying to get them in trouble, either embarrass them or get them killed, because we already know the the results, the consequences. And so they denounce them. In verse 8, where it says they come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews, the, the wording there, the imagery is to eat the pieces of flesh torn off somebody's body. So just in case we think this was a nice accusation, as if they ever are. No, no, the wording is they were trying to eat the flesh off their bodies. People took a stand for, for God. And the world fought back and was angry and was determined to make them stop. Don't miss what's happening here and the stand they are taking for Christ and the, the fighting back we see from Satan and, and his forces. So these positions were given to them. The music blared. Everyone bowed except these three. And the Chaldeans make this accusation. Application number one. Because what we see here is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have a, they have a confident commitment to God. They know God. They already have decided what they believe. They are, have already decided their standards, what they will and won't do. And they decided to obey God. Their confident commitment to God started with a really simple idea. No idols. No idols. I will bow to no one else except God. And, and, and we get our first application out of this. Do not allow worship of anything else but God to enter your life. Do not allow worship of anything else but God to enter your life. And when we talk about idols, it's, it's a really interesting conversation because I don't think many of you have an idol set up at home in a shrine that you're, you're bowing down to every day. Because we're like, well, of course we shouldn't do that. But there are other ways that idols come into our lives because if we, if we had to define idols, and I looked up some people's definitions, but a summary definition would be an idol is anything that takes the place of God as the most important focus and priority of our life. You catch that? An idol is anything that takes the place of God as the most important focus and priority of our life. 
It's valuing something or someone more than you value God in both thoughts and practice. And so if there is something that consumes my thoughts more than God, that consumes my time, that consumes my energies more than God, that probably is an idol and probably has, has replaced the first place God is to have in my life. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He defined it this way. An idol is something that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts me so easily that I give my time, attention, and money to it effortlessly. Let me read that again. A lot to that. An idol is something that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves, rouses, and attracts me so easily that I give my time, attention, and money to it effortlessly. There are all kinds of things that can be an idol. How many times have you looked at your phone this morning? Yeah, our devices can be idols, right? Both little screens and big screens can be idols. If they take more time than our time with God. If they are more important to us than our time with God. Is it more concerning to us to lose our phone or our Bible? See, th this is where we start to get real with, do we have idols? Sports can be an idol. Not for any of you, because you're all here when football season is starting today. <laughs> so if you have it on your screen, go ahead and turn that off. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sports can be an idol, both watching sports. And, and again, I'm not saying sports are bad. Idols are things that are often good things that take the wrong priority in life. Okay, our, a phone is a great thing, it's a great tool, but if it takes a priority that is, that is over God in our life, it's a problem. Sports are like, I love sports. It's a good year to be a Dodger fan. We'll see in a couple more weeks. But um, <laughs> I love sports, I love watching sports, I love cheering for sports teams. But is that more important than worship of God? Will that replace coming to the gathering of the saints? That's a hard question that we need to start asking. You know, when, when, I, when I see youth sports happening, and so many youth sports happen on Sunday, families, you have a decision to make. And your decision is teaching your kids something about idols and priorities. And I challenge you, because I've watched it happen over and over, where families start to get into Sunday morning sports and replace church with that, and so many times we never see them again even when sports are done, because it became an idol. Relationships can become idols. When I'm thinking more about the person that I like or that I'm dating than how I can nurture my relationship with God, that is a dangerous place to be. And that'll open up all kinds of areas for sin and compromise and, and by, by keeping God as the priority in our lives, by taking the stand that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going to take, or ha are taking, by taking that stand and saying, there will be no idols, we are protecting ourselves from a whole bunch of other grief, a whole bunch of other problems. Money can be an idol. The acquisition of money, the loss of money can be an idol, if that's all we think about and if that consumes us. Family. I'll cringe on that one too. Family can be the idol. And I, I would argue probably one of the things that people at Village struggle with the most. 
Is family good? Absolutely. I cherish my family. Are they more important than God? No. No. And so we serve together, we minister together. Family cannot be an idol. When we start compromising God's people and compromising God's ministry for the sake of family, that often indicates that we have an idol issue. Those are all sort of external things, but idols can also be internal things. And, and this is where the text starts, has started to mess with our lives in the last year and encourage and convict all at the same time. Because idols can also be internal, and, and uh, some authors call them deep idols, idols of comfort, idols of health, idols of dreams, and, and how life should be, how I expect it to, to be. When Susie was diagnosed with cancer, there was a real temptation to make that an idol. And let me explain, because you're like, you're not worshiping cancer. No, that would be stupid. No, it, but you start to have something that takes the importance away from God. And when there's a chronic illness and when there is a life-threatening illness, that can happen where that becomes more important than anything else. And that dominates every conversation. And then it becomes an idol that replaces our love for God, that challenges what God is actually trying to do through the circumstances. And so that, that, this text is one of the reasons why you haven't heard me talk a lot about it from the pulpit. Today being an exception. Because illness doesn't define us. Cancer doesn't define our family. Is it hard? Yeah. Is it something you think about all the time? Yeah. Does the medical necessities require you to pour a lot of time into it? Yeah. But is it the most important thing in your life, or is bringing glory to God the most important thing in your life? That's what changes it from an idol to now a tool to worship God. I know across our, our congregation, there are many struggling with cancer. There are many struggling with chronic illness. There are some today that can't be here because of chronic fatigue or chronic pain. And none of those are trivial. But all of those can either be an idol or a tool to serve God. What will it be? What will we bow to? And I refuse to bow to cancer. And I refuse to let illness win and take the place of the Most High God in our lives. What consumes you? If it comes down to worship of God and worship of others, which would win? Of any of those things, internal or external. And, and one of the ways to think about that is where are your thoughts, where are your energies, where are your expenditures? Because those things show us what's most important to us. Application one from these three young men. Do not allow worship of anything else but God to enter your life. All of those other things are real, they are good, they are part of life. They all are to point to God, not detract from your walk with God. 
Then we get to the heart of the text. Verses 13 through 18, and especially 16 through 18. The confrontation shows the young men's absolute trust in and worship of God. The confrontation, point number three, shows the young men's absolute trust in and worship of God. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, again, so much of what he does is is motivated out of pride, and you'll see that culminate in next week's text. He is a proud man, and he is mad that someone isn't bowing to his image, and someone is defying his orders. And, And as someone that is filled with pride and only themselves will do, he is ticked off. He is in furious rage. He commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And so they bring him in, they bring him into the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true? Really? You're not going to bow, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image I have set up? Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you another chance. I'm adding some some words in there. (laughs) And and, and I I always think when we read, we've got to ask why. Why why is he giving them another chance? I think, again, it comes back to pride and saving face. You, you don't want someone that, that stood up to you and defied you, so you need to bring them under control, bring them into the fold. Uh, some say, well, maybe he just really liked them. No, he, he's already in furious rage. I think this is an issue of pride. I could be wrong. But he says in verse 15, now if you're ready, tell you what I'm going to do. If you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, man, we have full descriptions of this band every time. When you hear it again, I'll bring him in. We'll have your own private show here. Fall down and worship the image I have made. It'll all be well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And then he throws the gauntlet down. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And there you see the pride and that this is actually a contest not between Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but between Nebuchadnezzar and the Most High. And who is Most High? That's the conflict here. And so he says, who's the God who will deliver out of my hands? And I'm thinking, the one that knew your dreams? The one that said his kingdom will last over all? Hello? But he doesn't remember that. And so he gives them a second chance. Now we know from the story that they're they're not going to take the second chance. In fact, in verse 16, it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Literally, it means we're not going to defend ourselves. Nothing's going to change. We don't need another chance. This is a settled issue. It is done. They were resolved. And so we come to this statement of faith that we're going to see in 16, start in 16 and then 17 and 18, a statement of faith and trust in God's sovereignty, whether or not he chooses to save them. Their minds were made up, and it didn't matter how God chose to act, amen? Because they had absolute trust in him. They knew what they believed. They didn't need to answer. They were not going to serve anyone but Yahweh. And so application two is to take a firm, unwavering stand, refusing to sin, no matter how serious the consequences. 
take a firm, unwavering stand, refusing to sin, no matter how serious the consequences. And, and I debated, do I combine this with application one? Do I have a separate? But, but I wanted this separate because the concept here is when we take a firm, unwavering stand, we resolve to do that ahead of time. A man or woman who has integrity at work resolves to have integrity at work ahead of time, and so the circumstances don't matter. A couple that is dating and sets physical parameters and says, we won't pass that, those need to be made ahead of time and resolved so that way when the the heat of the moment comes up, it will not be crossed. Mom and dad, as you're parenting, when you decide on a parenting style and decide, I'm not going to yell at my kids, I'm not going to scream at them, I'm going to discipline in firmness and love, decide that ahead of time because when they are shaking their little fist at you and defying you, that's not the time to make that decision. You'll make the wrong one every time like Nebuchadnezzar did. And so this is a separate application to me. Take a firm, unwavering stand, refusing to sin, no matter how serious the consequences. And and sometimes when we let consequences convince us to sin or peer pressure or things around us convince us to sin, I think the reason for that is we don't take sin serious enough. We take sin lightly. Well, I can confess it, and God and I are good. No, it is an offense and rebellion against the infinite Most High God. Let's start to realize the depth of our sins so we can appreciate the depth of his grace and be motivated to obedience. Nothing was going to make these three men sin. Now, did they, did they have sin in their lives? Absolutely. We all sin. But they had decided to take this stand for Christ. Let me tell you, Satan will always come up with new and creative ways to tempt you. You think you have it down now, next year he'll have some different ways to tempt you and some different ways to try to to get into your life. They were committed to serving God and refusing to sin even if it killed them. And we need to be that serious to work to avoid sin at any cost. And this is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, if, you're, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. And he's not saying that literally we should take a spoon and eat, that's just gross. Um, he's saying that's how seriously we should take sin, that we are cutting out anything that leads us down that path. They're, they're believers in God, but now they're standing next to the fire, and they had a choice to make. This, incidentally, is where they decided to defy authority and defy government when they were asked to sin. When they were asked to do something that would be in direct violation of God's commands to worship him and worship him alone. This is where we say, I would obey, rather obey God than man. And so then we move on in, in the text to, to 17 and 18. And they say, if this be so... Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And it starts with this idiom which is hard to translate, if this be so. And because it, it, it literally in the Aramaic says, well, if God exists. But, but what he's saying here, it was an idiom, a figure of speech to say, if God is able to save you and he is, then, then we know he will. 
We, we believe that he can, and we believe that he will. And this is an absolute confidence in God. And so we have to understand that, that that's an idiom. If this be so is, is referring to this phrase and this entire phrase. And it's not saying, well, maybe God doesn't exist. I know a couple translations translate it that way. Some like the ESV, ESV I think is confusing as well. If this be so, if, well, what if so? And, and really, I think the best way to translate this is, so if our God whom we serve is able to save us, then he will, and he is. That's it. So idiom, idioms make sense, figures of speech. Um, you know, I wanted to explain idioms, and I figured it would be a piece of cake because they are plain as day. But then I realized my kids don't get most of mine and they miss the boat, so I'm digging myself deeper in a hole and fanning the flames of them thinking I'm old. I guess I'll stop now because I'm just beating a dead horse, which is just wrong. <laughs> I want to know where that one came from. That one's weird. When we interpret God's word, we need to understand idioms. And we need to understand these figures of speech and seek to try to understand them as they would have. And so this isn't questioning the existence of God. It's not questioning even the ability of God. In fact, it's a statement supporting the ability of God if this is true, if, if God is able to save us, and he is, we know he will save us. And this is such a beautiful belief in the ability of God. But the question comes, then, what if God chooses not to? Because, newsflash, God doesn't bend to our will, we bend to his will. And so what if he chooses not to? And some will say, well, he never will if you, if you have enough faith. Hogwash, you and I aren't God. And so we get verse 18, which has to be read with it, but if not, and that if not refers to the phrase right before it, if he doesn't save us, if he doesn't deliver us from the fiery furnace, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Boom, mic drop. Ended the discussion. They said, our God can save us, we believe that he will, but if he chooses not to, that changes nothing. We even right now, even if we know he might not save us, we choose to worship him and we choose to give him our life and we choose to believe in the Most High God. What an amazing statement, not only of defiance, but of trust in God. There is no doubt that God can save. There's no, but there's also no right to presume that he will do so. He could save, but there's no guarantee that he will save. And, and we sang that this morning. Our God is able to save. We believe he will, but even if he doesn't, and even if we know that he's going down a different path, we trust that that is his will, and we still praise and worship him. See, God doesn't always protect he doesn't always eliminate our trial. He doesn't always heal. And, he, he, and that should not make us question him. In fact, the fact that we know that he can should make us know that this is his will if he doesn't. Let, let, let me explain that again because this is so key and this has been so instrumental in our lives. The fact that I know God could heal Susie and he could heal her like that makes me trust that if he chooses not to, he is doing something so much bigger than that that I can understand. 
that make sense? And that gives me confidence to wake up the next day. It gives her confidence to go through the next chemo. Because God is greater and doing something more. This is not the time to question God. This is the time to be a testimony for God and to make a stand for God. There is no worry here because they trusted that God was in control of all things. Thank you. And so we ask ourselves, do I have that same assurance? Can I say God can save? I'm praying that he will, and I'm praying with boldness that he will. But if he chooses not to, I still trust him. In fact, I trust him more because he has a bigger plan for this. Village, if you, get a, if you draw any encouragement from our situation, draw that. That God can save, and if he chooses not to, he's doing something far greater, and you want to be part of it. Trust him no matter what. And so application three is be confident in God's ability. Be confident in his ability and in his will, and cling to it when you're weak. Be confident in God's ability and his will, and cling to it when you're weak. They fully believed in God's ability. They trusted him completely, and they acted on it. This world is a mess. It has fallen. It is a Genesis 3 world. You are going to have a moment in front of the furnace where you are going to need to make this declaration that my God can get me through this. He will get me through this. And if it's not how I expect it to be, I still believe and I still trust him. See, trials and difficulties like this, cancer or other things, those are simply frames that that we use to accentuate the picture. And the picture is God. The picture is what is he doing. The picture is how is he working. And our lives are just frames that point to that. You don't want someone to go to an art exhibit and say, those frames were beautiful. No, it's not about the frames. It's about the Most High. And so when we are confident in God's ability and his will, and we cling to that even when we're weak, that changes everything. Now I would love to say that every day this was our confident assertion. But truthfully, there were some days that stunk. And there were some days watching what she went through and being helpless to do anything about it where I questioned this. And you need to know that. You need to know how hard a stand like this is because there are difficult days where it wasn't a confident assertion, but it was a plea to God to say, my faith is weak, our faith is weak, please help me believe. But either way, the assertion both works as a confident statement, but it also works as a rock you cling to, sometimes by your fingernails knowing that God loves us and knowing that he is doing something beyond us. As I shared a month and a half ago, the news we were getting was that God was choosing not to save. Especially the first six months. 
And so what we were dealing with in these verses wasn't, oh, this is easy because God is going to save. We were dealing with the second half of saying, well, it looks like God is choosing not to. How do we still not make this an idol? How do we still bring glory to God? And how do we encourage God's church? Because of prayer, because of community, because of love, because of God's promises, we're here today. All of those things work together to help us believe the truth that we find in these two verses. We clung to them. We knew they were true even on the days we didn't feel like they were true. And when you make a confident stand, when you make a resolution, then the knowledge of what is true can overcome the feelings of what might not be true. God is working, trust him. He is working in your furnace right now, trust him. Be resolute, be firm that you will trust him no matter what his decision is and no matter the answer. Warren Wiersbe says, faith means obeying God regardless of the feelings within us, the circumstances around us, or the consequences before us. That is the center point of this text. Now, the narrator doesn't stop there. Daniel doesn't stop there. He, he lets us know what happens, which is really cool. And so we'll go through the other points pretty quickly here. Number four, the anger-fueled sentence is enforced. The anger-fueled sentence enforced. 19, after they make this statement, nothing's going to make us worship anyone else but God. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If he was angry before, it's way worse now. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. That's another idiom, which is why I wanted to explain idioms. Physically, the, the science of it, it couldn't have gotten seven times more. But what that meant is it was as hot as possible. He made it as hot as possible because of his anger. Verse 21, well, 20, he ordered some of the mighty men of the army to bind them and to cast them into the, the fiery furnace. Then these men are, were bound, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fully in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats. Um, some say it's translated robes, trousers, turbans. Whatever they're wearing, that would help the flames burn them up. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so they were taking them to the top of the furnace to throw them in. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. <laughs> the king couldn't even protect his own soldiers from the fire. Compare that to the Most High who protects his followers inside the fire. The, the comparisons, you can't miss them here. It's a story of who God is. And how great he is. And then in verse 24, section 5, God's salvation realized. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste. He, he sort of, what is going on? Because he's off to the side, probably looking through that little window. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? I counted three. One, two, three. My math is okay up to five. 
He says, but, but I, see a four, I see four men unbound. I can count up to four too, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. They're just chilling in there. You like that? That's one of those um, idioms that makes me current. <laughs> Sorry, I just ruined it all. <laughs> My kids will never speak to me again. <laughs> They're just chilling in there, walking around, talking, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. All kinds of debate. Is that a pre-incarnate Christ? Is it a Christophany? I think po- quite possibly, but it's not required by the text. It could be just an angel of the Lord, as Nebuchadnezzar thinks, The point is, God showed up, and God did not leave them alone in this trial. He was with them in the middle of it. 26, and this is, I I know fiery furnaces are serious, but this makes me laugh. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. He's yelling this into a a, a 1,400-degree fire. (laughs) And they came out from the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, kings, counselors gathered together. The people that Nebuchadnezzar was trying to be loyal to him bow down to, to his idol, reject other gods, but bow to him. They now are firsthand to see the most high on display. Because of faithfulness in the fire. Because they were firm in the fire. This totally backfires on King Nebuchadnezzar. They gathered together, saw the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. We do a fire pit in our backyard and the whole rest of the night I smell like smoke, right? They had not even the smell of fire on them. This was a complete salvation, saving event. And application four there is God is always with us through the fire. God is always with you through the fire. Even if you don't feel it, he is there. For our family, he was always there holding us. And he saw every tear. He saw every fear. He saw every victory. He saw every concern. And he did not let us down. And I don't say that today because Susie's doing better. I say that today because we trust the Most High God. I hope you can see how meaningful this chapter has been to us. I hope it is for you. The end of the chapter, God's name is lifted high. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. This is so cool. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. Maybe we're still a little violent. And their houses laid in ruins, and for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Did you catch that? For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. 
Thank you, worship team, for singing You Alone Can Rescue this morning. That's a truth we need to hear. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the people that turned them in, they're just, yeah. (laughs) And that's setting up what's going to happen in the future. What was the purpose of the furnace? To lift God's name high. To show that he is most high. We're going to hear a song and sing a song to close. We'll go a couple minutes over today. But my challenge to you is who will you worship? Who will you trust? Even in those events that rock your world, that tear things apart that you have no idea how to get through. Even in trials, even in temptations, who will you trust? Because my heart for village is that we will be a people who no matter the circumstances, whether God says yes or whether whether God says no, we will still trust him and have our hope in him, and have a firm belief that he is working. Village, that's actually the only way to get through trials successfully. That's the only way to have a rock to stand on. That even if God doesn't answer, he is our hope and we trust him because he is still present and still with us. Thank you for your word. For the example of these three young men, but Lord, the testimony of who you are, the anchor and the rock that you are, the fortress, the refuge. And Lord, we humbly acknowledge our plan is not better than your plan. And we submit to you by saying we believe you are able to deliver from whatever furnace we're in. And if you choose to leave us in that, Lord, that we will still worship you because we will point to what you're trying to do. Lord, may that be our firm resolution as your people. May we encourage each other in that. May we lift each other up in that. That that be the testimony of every situation that is happening right now in this room. The trials, the difficulties, the challenges to compromise, Lord. May we be resolutely worshipers of you and pointing to you. Lord, we proclaim to you it is well with our souls because you are most high. In your name, amen.